Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Just like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new Service Hub can help, with the service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform, with an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to handle your frontline tickets, so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. Good morning, everyone. I'm Mark Dent, and you're listening to The Hustle Daily Show. Today, we have a special episode where we're going to be talking about private equity. If you're not exactly sure what private equity does, you have more than likely encountered it somewhere along the way. Private equity companies have taken over in our economy. Jimboree, KB Toys, Hertz, Mervins, The Mattress Firm, Payless Shoe Source. You can go on and on. All those companies have at one point been owned by private equity or are still owned by private equity. At the same time, private equity companies have even gone into the mobile home park business, the nursing home business, even the prison services business. So what exactly is private equity? An author named Brendan Ballou has just written a book called Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America that goes into great depth to explain what private equity is and the ways that it has impacted our economy. I sat down with Brendan for an interview. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Brendan Ballou, the author of Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. Okay, Brendan Ballou, welcome to the Hustle Daily Show. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. All right. So, Brendan, you've written Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. We're going to try and really educate our listeners on private equity, this subject that I think seems a little confusing and bewildering in many ways. So what is private equity exactly and what's its impact on the American economy? They're really great questions, and I should obviously preface this by saying that I'm here in a personal capacity and not on behalf of my employer. So what is private equity? It's a question that I didn't really know the answer to until I was probably a third of the way through this project. Basically, private equity firms take a little bit of their own money, some borrowed money and some investor money, Mm -hmm. and then try to buy up companies. They make operational and financial changes to the companies with the aims of selling them for a profit a few years later. So it's a very simple business model, but for various reasons we can discuss, it often leads to bad outcomes for the actual companies that are bought, the consumers who use those companies, and the people that work for them. And it's all over. When we talk about the economy, I mean, we're talking healthcare, nursing homes, retail, everything, basically. Absolutely. If you go to the store and buy pet food, if you go to an OBGYN clinic, if you go to the emergency room or go to prison, if you even pour out water in your faucet in some localities, you are indirectly supporting a private equity firm. PE firms spent about a trillion dollars on acquisitions last year. And just for context, the entire U.S. GDP is about $25 trillion. So it's a big chunk of change. And so some of these firms, when we go to the grocery store, when we're shopping for pet food and things like that, unless you're really into the weeds, we don't know probably that private equity firms are involved with some of the stuff we're buying. But some of these names probably are familiar to some of our listeners. What are some of the top private equity firms? You've got a sophisticated listener audience. So, you know, they're probably familiar with firms like Blackstone and Carlisle and KKR. 
And, you know, the exact order of those may change, but if you consider them with their portfolio companies, they would be the third, fourth, and fifth largest employers in America, right behind Walmart and Amazon. You know, BlackRock, we hear names like that, and we just kind of think finance generally. But private equity firms are not exactly like hedge funds. They're not exactly like investment banks. How is that different than what like a hedge fund does? It's a great question because there's not a strict legal difference between a hedge fund and a private equity firm. I'd say probably the general distinction that people would draw is, in general, hedge funds invest in securities, you know, mm-hmm. stocks, bonds, so forth. Private equity firms buy whole companies, you know, Sears, Kmart, pay less shoe source. The really interesting thing is, as private equity firms have expanded, they've really gone beyond the business of quote unquote private equity. You know, it's a little confusing, but now you have large private equity firms that are actually getting into the business of hedge funds or infrastructure, insurance, and so forth. So in a lot of ways, even though private equity firms might be a little less well-known than Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, they're sort of taking on the role the investment banks had, you know, a decade or two ago. So one thing that I've wondered, and you answered this in your book, is how did private equity firms come about? It's not like they've been around for 100 years or anything like that either. When did they get started and how? Like, how did private equity firms come to prominence? So the idea of doing a leveraged buyout, you know, taking borrowed money to buy up a company has been around for a long time. I think there are records of them happening in as early as the 40s, I'm sure even before then. I think private equity as an industry really took off in the 1980s. And it was likely the consequence of essentially lowered capital gains tax rates at the end of the Carter administration, and then a long period of low interest rates. And that meant that it was increasingly profitable to be in finance, and it was increasingly easy to borrow money to buy up companies. Yeah. So that led to the first boom in the 80s. I think that there was sort of a falling off in the late 80s into the 90s, but then a resurgence in the 2000s, and especially in the past few years as you've had this era of extremely low interest rates. Mm-hmm. I think private equity firms had their biggest year in 2021, you know, in the midst of quarantine, when so much else of the economy was sort of receding, private equity was resurging. Okay, so, you know, earlier when you were discussing just what private equity firms are and what they do. You mentioned, of course, that it can often lead to negative outcomes for the companies they purchase, for the customers of those companies. What are some of those outcomes and how does that sort of play into the business model of a private equity firm? So just to give a couple of statistics, you know, when private equity firms got involved in the nursing home industry, Mm -hmm. they were responsible for an estimated, according to one study, 20,000 premature deaths over a 15-year period. When private equity firms got involved in the retail industry, they were responsible for an estimated, according to one study, 600,000 job losses over a decade at a period when the industry was actually growing. These are very diverse industries, yet Private equity seems to have bad consequences across them oftentimes. And I think that really comes down to three issues. One is that private equity firms tend to invest just for the short term. Mm -hmm. They're looking at holding the companies they buy for, you know, three or five or seven years often. The second is that private equity firms often tend to load up the companies they buy with a lot of debt and extract a lot of fees. And then the third thing, and this is the part that's really interesting to me as a lawyer, is that private equity firms often are able to insulate themselves from liability for the consequences of their actions and the actions of their portfolio companies. Mm -hmm. And so when you combine all those characteristics, sort of short-term thinking, a lot of debt and fees, and insulation from liability, it creates incentives that I think have bad consequences often across industries. 
I want to go through like one example of a company that was purchased by a private equity firm. It's called Shopco, which was a regional, maybe national-ish retailer. They were purchased by Sun Capital, and it was in some ways like a textbook private equity deal because they purchased Shopco with borrowed money, I believe hundreds of millions of dollars. And then even though they were the ones who were purchased, Shopco had to pay back the debt rather than Sun Capital, which made the purchase. Now, this happens all the time in private equity. Almost every time I think people read stories about private equity, they hear this. The private equity firm does the purchase, they borrow the money, and then they force the company to pay it back. Like, how does that happen? Like, why do companies agree to that? And just how does that whole process work? Yeah. So as you said, the private equity firm Sun Capital bought up Shopco, I believe in 2006 or 2007, with borrowed money, as we'll talk about, and then executed a couple of fairly standard tactics. One is called a sale leaseback. So they required Shopco to sell its real estate for its stores and then lease it back. And that gives Shopco and Sun Capital a quick hit of cash, but it means Mm -hmm. now that Shopco essentially has an indefinite responsibility for paying for stores that it used to own, and it doesn't have assets that it can borrow against in the future if times, you know, prove poor. It also required transaction fees and management fees. These management fees were essentially money that Shopco had to pay for the privilege of being owned by Sun Capital. So that kind of gets to your question of why would Shopco or any other company do this? Because as you said, there's sort of a strange alchemy that goes on when private equity firms buy up businesses, which is they do it with a lot of debt, but it's debt that the bought business needs to pay, Hmm. not the private equity firm. I think the reasons are a little complicated, but one of them is that these buyouts are often very lucrative, if not for the acquired company, then for its executives who are often Hmm. paid in stock and equity and are going to get a big payout when the private equity firm comes in. So you see that on a big scale with some of these companies. You also see it on a small scale when private equity firms buy up dermatology or OBGYN clinics. It's doctors often that want to retire that sell. That works great for the retiring doctors, but often not for the people that still need to work at the practice. So it's like you were saying earlier that private equity firms, they in general think about like short-term gains So some of these executives of these companies who are selling to private equity are often thinking of probably for themselves as much as for their company, I guess. Yeah, I I don't want to impute motives to them, but it does seem that oftentimes, you know, executives of purchased private equity companies, big or small benefit, even if the long-term health of the business, you know, succeeds or doesn't. And so to go back to Shopco, for instance, what happened to them? Like you said, Sun Capital sold off their businesses, then they started renting them out. You know, there was a lot of forced dividend payment. So things like that. What happened to Shopco? And is it something similar that often happens to companies that are purchased by private equity firms? Well, so ultimately Shopco went bankrupt and essentially doesn't exist anymore. It was a sad story of, you know, workers who had been there for generations working up until the final days and in fact had been promised severance that they were initially not paid. I believe that workers had to go to court to actually ensure that they were compensated for sort of working in this horrible time when the business is collapsing. I'm not sure if Sun Capital did this to Shopco specifically, but one of the really interesting things that Sun Capital and other private equity firms have been able to do is actually hold on to the companies they buy in bankruptcy Mm -hmm. by sort of a complicated process where they both own the company and lend the company money. 
And the result is by doing that, they're able to hold on to the business, but they're able to push off the pension obligations of the bankrupted business onto what's called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. And so Sun Capital did this with, I believe, Friendly's, the diner chain. Yeah. And the result was they get to control these businesses, but the responsibilities to employees and retirees is now held by this quasi-government agency. So when private equity firms take over companies, I mean, do they install leadership? You had, I, I know, Payless Shoe Source was one example you gave. I think Alden Capital, which is maybe technically not a PE firm, but often acts like one. They purchased Payless. I think they installed an investment banker to lead the charges. What involvement do they have in the sense of day-to-day running of the company? Are they typically involved? It depends. And, you know, the really interesting thing is, as you said, private equity leaders tend to have their experience in finance, not in marketing or operations, engineering, and so forth. And yet, private equity firms often get deeply involved in the operations of the companies they buy. To go back to the Sun Capital, the firm that we were talking about earlier, when they bought up Marsh Supermarkets, you know, employees were complaining that they were getting directions from the private equity firm, but, you know, the executives didn't even know what a UPC code is, you know, the thing that you scan on a barcode scanner. Yeah, yeah. On the Payless example, it was a really interesting case where the private equity owner installed as the CEO, not somebody that had experience in shoes, but somebody that had experience in finance. And unsurprisingly, when they made operational suggestions, they didn't turn out terribly well. For instance, they recommended shutting down a quality control factory in China for the shoes that meant that quickly shoes started coming into the wrong shape or size and doing a sale for the World Cup by selling flip-flops with different countries' flags on it. But the flags were in countries where they didn't actually have stores and so forth. So it's not always the case that private equity firms install the wrong person in the business, but I think their perspective is a financial perspective rather than an operational one, typically. Yeah. So we've chatted here mainly about, you know, retail, grocery stores, you know, those types of companies that private equity has taken over. I guess that it's easier to imagine private equity being involved when you're just going to a store or something like that. But they're also involved in housing and they especially started to get involved in it after the financial crisis and after a lot of people defaulted on mortgages uh, in 2008, 2007. And all of a sudden there were lots of homes, lots of apartments available. And we started to see a lot of buying from private equity firms. Sometimes we're not just talking dozens of homes, we're talking maybe hundreds, maybe thousands. What happened after the Great Recession and how did private equity firms step in and kind of become involved in the housing industry? Yeah. So to situate listeners, you know, some of whom may be younger and might not even directly remember all the chaos of the Great Recession, but you had whole cities that had, you know, dramatic areas of houses that were underwater, you know, where people couldn't pay their mortgages or that were foreclosed upon. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are these quasi-government agencies, had an ownership stake in nearly half the mortgages in America at the time. And so they had the leverage to essentially probably do what would have been the rational thing for everybody, which would be to temporarily lower the principal on people's homes. And if you did that, the mortgages would no longer be underwater. It would be rational for people to stay. They could stay in their homes and you would reduce the ripple effect in whole neighborhoods. The head of the FHFA, which regulated Fannie and Freddie, adamantly opposed what was called principal reduction. 
But rather than doing that, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac started bundling foreclosed homes and selling them in large tracks. Hmm. So these were large tracks that, because they were bundles, individuals obviously couldn't buy, rather investors would. And what those investors did, primarily or you know, in large part private equity firms, is they bought up whole tracks and then converted the homes into single-family rentals. And so what you now see is in a lot of neighborhoods, it's the same people who are living in the place as a decade or two ago, but they're living there as renters rather than as owners. And so you've seen home ownership decline pretty dramatically in America. Yep. Home ownership for African-American families is now at the level that it was during the civil rights movement. So, you know, you've seen this dramatic change and it's not entirely, but it's partly because of the business model and what private equity firms did. And so what is like the strategy for these private equity firms? Are they holding on to these houses in hopes of just selling them at a profit somewhere later down the road? In large part, they're holding them to rent them out indefinitely. Okay. And so you've seen the growth of single family rentals in a way that I don't think you saw before the Great Recession. The really interesting thing about it is in a lot of jurisdictions, single family rentals don't have the same tenant protections that multifamily or apartment units have. Blackstone fought very successfully against extending some of those protections in California. They spent about $7 million lobbying and ultimately were able to get a ballot referendum defeated on that. And so people who are renting these homes, they oftentimes probably don't realize that it's a private equity firm that's their owner. Is that correct? There's oftentimes certainly a private equity firm. Then there might even be some company under that. And then finally, like a property manager there's a lot of steps down to where the person who's renting it might just not even know. Is that right? Absolutely. There's a lot of ownership steps and it can be opaque and hard to understand who the ultimate owner is. And private equity firms are getting involved in lots of different ways here, either directly owning the home or owning the company that owns the home or financing the company that owns the home. So private equity can be involved in the home that you live in in a lot of ways you may not even see. And so what are some of the impacts? You, you mentioned, of course, that we have seen a decline in home ownership rate in the U.S., certainly since the Great Recession. But for people who live in those neighborhoods, for people who live in those homes, are there ways that life lived under the ownership of private equity has some drawbacks for them? Well, so, you know, for people that are living in single family homes, it's not just the rent you pay, it's the fees that you're going to pay. You know, there's been reporting about fees that people pay for you know, having an animal, having a smart lock, you know, having a pool, having sort of surprise fees that you wouldn't know about. And if you can't pay for them, there's been a lot of reporting about extremely aggressive collection tactics, mm -hmm. you know, things like putting around police tape around a person's home to try to embarrass them into paying what they allegedly owe. You know, one of the toughest areas where you see how this plays out is actually in mobile homes where private equity firms are really active. And there, you know, people who own mobile homes have the equity that they have in the home, but they also pay a lot rent every month to live where they do. At least in some places, private equity firms have bought up mobile home parks and then dramatically increased the lot rents, which, you know, takes more of people's income. But it also lowers the value of the home, you know, because they really actually, despite the name, can't really move it. Mm -hmm. And as a result, private equity firms often are taking not only people's income in mobile home parks, but also some of their wealth. The mobile homes, which you brought up in the book, you mentioned that obviously it's typically lower income Americans who are living in mobile homes. 
that private equity firms, it might sound counterintuitive when you think of these, you know, really well-heeled companies, you know, that spent, as you mentioned, $1 trillion last year, that they'd focus on that sector of the economy. But that is sometimes what they do. Why is that? It's really interesting because you'd think that a business that's about making money would focus on rich people because that's where the money is. And yet, oftentimes, private equity firms target industries that service the poor, you know, whether we're talking about mobile homes, payday lenders, for-profit colleges, and so forth. And I think the reason is that working class people literally have fewer options when it comes to choosing products and services. And so you can raise prices or you can lower the quality of care. And oftentimes, you know, people with lower incomes really don't have an alternative. Probably the most extreme example of this is prison services, you know, prison phone services, healthcare, cafeteria and commissary services. Yeah. Private equity has been involved in all of those. And in all of them, you have a sort of literally captive audience. Yeah. So your book, obviously, I mean, just from the title of it, Plunder, you know, we can tell what the theme is, kind of what the viewpoint is. And, and we've largely here been discussing so far some of the drawbacks of private equity. But I, I want to talk a little bit about trying to understand at least maybe some of the other side. And I think one thing that people often say who don't necessarily have a problem with private equity, and it's something that you bring up in your book as well, they'll just be like, well, hey, this is just capitalism. They're just kind of following that old playbook. What's the problem? What do you say to that? So my critique is not a critique of anybody in private equity. I've talked to various folks in the industry and they've been uniformly nice and accommodating. It's a critique of the private equity business model. And basically it's that we've invented these three problems, short-termism, reliance on debt and fees, and insulation from liability. And those, you know, are not really a extreme form of capitalism, but rather a perversion of it. You know, so whether you're a democratic socialist or a Reagan Republican, this is a business model that should concern you because it's not about competing fairly. It's about being able to extract value from a company rather than to expand it. I always like to say, you know, as a lawyer, we sort of invent a bad business model in America every 20 years or so through our laws and regulations. You know, 10 years ago, it would have been subprime lenders. 40 years ago, it would have been savings and loans associations. 60 years ago, it would have been conglomerates. 100 years ago, it would have been trusts. So, you know, it's the same playbook. We just keep reinventing it and hopefully we can fix it. And so you've mentioned right there that you've talked to a lot of people who work in private equity. I mean, there are lots of people who work for some of these companies. These are huge companies and they're not all like executives either, right? What do they tell you? Like, do they believe that their work is valuable? What do they think of the work that they do that working in this model, as you suggested, seems antithetical to what we should want in the economy? It's interesting. I have gotten surprisingly little pushback from sort of my core thesis from various people who've reached out to me. In fact, I got dinner the other night with somebody who worked at a, a large private equity firm or had worked at it and basically said, I agree with the thesis. I'm sure that's a selective audience of the people that decide to reach out. But it's interesting. I actually don't think that there's a huge fight on the sort of underlying facts in the story. I think perhaps it's more disagreement about what to do about it or whether something can be done. Do they see it as they're helping these companies when they take them over? Well, I can't speak to any specific people that I've talked to, but I'll say that the manager of Yale's endowment used to call private equity a superior form of capitalism. David Rubenstein, the former head of the Carlyle Group, used to call it the highest calling in mankind. And I think he meant that a little tongue in cheek, but I also think he meant it 
seriously. So I definitely think that there are people that really do believe that private equity is a more extreme and ultimately better form of capitalism. My argument is it's actually just essentially using some changes in the law to get advantages that really aren't sort of competition on the merits oftentimes. So what's the state of private equity in 2023? You mentioned 2021 was interest rates were low. The economy was wacky in so many ways. And for private equity, it was a really big year. Obviously, interest rates are not nearly as high because their strategy involves borrowing and spending large sums of money. How are they doing these days? Well, so, you know, interest rates have risen significantly. And I think that has put a crunch on the private equity business model. And we're seeing reporting of sort of stresses happening at some of these firms. I have a lot of faith that private equity firms will manage to get out of this just fine. And the interesting thing is watching private equity sort of expand beyond the business of quote unquote private equity, you know, watching some of these firms really become less buyout businesses and more lenders in the private credit market suggests to me that they're going to be creative and figure out new ways to prosper, even in sort of an era of new higher interest rates. So the last part of your book is devoted to the potential for reform, to how we can sort of maybe make some changes so that private equity firms, when they purchase companies, the outcomes are not the same, as we've seen a lot. And you give a couple of kind of negative examples of like an era that we could be in. (laughs) And then you also say, but potentially we could also be in 1903, which is kind of the beginning of the end of the Gilded Age. What do you mean by that? If 2023 could look like 1903, how are we close to that historic parallel? And what could be the positive things coming forward if that is the case? So private equity firms are very similar legally to the trusts of the 19th century, you know, that which was an era where you had sort of organizations that had financial and operational control over sort of disparate businesses. Private equity firms are basically the same thing. And The Gilded Age was a very tough period for ordinary people, you know, as a time when, you know, the very rich are having literal diamond hunts as they sprinkle diamonds into the ground and having people looking at it while, you know, 100,000 people or more are dying working on railroad trains. So it it was a very difficult period in American history. Ultimately, the power of the trust was constrained through the populist and the progressive movements who created the modern antitrust laws, who created the Federal Trade Commission, created the progressive income tax, our labor laws and environmental laws and so forth. And ultimately, they built the foundation for a better, fairer economy and I think laid the groundwork for sort of the broadly based middle class prosperity of the 1950s. It's possible that we can do the same thing again. If we institute the right policies, we can build a better, fairer economy and rather than destroy private equity, make it a useful part of our economy. And first, how could it be a useful part of the economy? So as long as businesses need to grow and expand, factories need to get built, employees need to get hired, somebody's got to give that business money and take the risk. And, you know, that's what finance is about. Private equity can be a part of that. The challenges, the problems that we were talking about earlier, changes the incentives so that they're not necessarily thinking about the long-term health of these companies. Yeah, and... Then finally, do you see momentum for some of these reforms? Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting talking to people as part of this book, just how many people are sort of becoming aware of or have been aware of private equity and really think that something needs to be done to fix the business model. 
I have to say, I think there are really important and successful movements going on about fixing some of these problems in specific industries. You know, I mentioned prisons earlier. You know, there's been really successful work on capping the rate of prison phone calls, which is a private equity sort of led industry. In nursing homes, there's rulemaking going on to finally establish national minimum staffing criteria and improve transparency on who actually owns specific nursing homes. So I think we're seeing activists, organizers, ordinary people really have success on specific industries, and we just need to keep doing that. Okay. Well, I think we should leave it on that. Brendan Ballou, thank you for joining us. Again, Brendan is the author of Plunder, Private Equities Plan to Pillage America, and it's available just about anywhere you would want to go look for books. Brendan, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for the time. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Thanks again to Brendan Ballou. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Our editor today is Robert Hartwig, and our executive producer is Darren Clark. We've got a lot more tech and business coverage in our newsletter. So if you're not subscribed, go get signed up at thehustle.co slash email. We'll see you tomorrow. Hey, everybody. I got a great podcast to tell you about. It's called Truth, Lies, and Work. And it's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this show, you can join husband and wife team, Alan, Leanne, Elliot, as they dispel myths, impart wisdom, and answer all your questions about finding, keeping, and motivating great people. They actually just did an episode with John Smith, who is the manager and agent of famous Argentinian soccer player, Diego Maradona. He talks about in this episode how he was able to manage the global superstar athlete celebrity that Maradona is and was. It's a great listen. You better get out there and check it out. And you can listen to Truth, Lies, and Work wherever you get your podcasts.